Hello, and welcome to The Brain Made Plain. I'm your host, Jonathan Peel. Each episode, I talk to a different brain scientist about their research. Joining me today is Dr. Taraz Lee. Taraz, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I wonder, to start with, if you could just uh, give a little overview of the research going on in your lab right now. Sure. So um, in my lab, we're primarily interested in a process called cognitive control. Um, So how we act in the service of our goals um, and how processes that support that, like attention and working memory, interface with things like motivation and the learning of skills, and specifically motor skills or movement skills. Um, So we do a whole bunch of different kinds of studies using a variety of techniques, including neuroimaging and behavioral studies and brain stimulation studies to try to get a handle on both um, how all these processes interact to produce behavior and also how the brain supports the process. I wonder if you could give an example of how cognitive control interfaces with uh, with goal-directed behavior or even just like at a basic level, like what an example of a goal someone might be trying to accomplish. Sure. So an example I like to use is just, let's say, driving a car. Um, so over time, you learn to be pretty good at driving a car if you have a lot of practice. But let's imagine you go to England or somewhere where they drive on the side of the road. Uh, in that case, you're going to have to override all, a lot of your over, uh, you're going to have to override a lot of your automatic tendencies in terms of where you're looking, where you are uh, attending to in space. So, you know, maybe when you're making a left turn, you look at a particular part of the space to check for cars, you're going to have to overcome that and kind of change your actions and what you're doing in the service of this new goal and this new rule to drive on the left side of the road. Um, so things like shifting attention, um, maintaining what the rule is. So keeping in mind, drive the left side of the road. Um, these kinds of processes are, are what we collectively refer to as cognitive control in um, cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience often. And it, is it fair to say that sort of like, and I don't want to, maybe this is obvious to people, but but your goals can be sort of like big goals and small goals, right? So like a big goal, if you're driving on the uh, side of the road you're not used to is like not to hit a car, not to hit a tree. But it could also be like if I'm reaching for something uh, and I'm going to, I'm not going to get it the way that I think I am. I have to kind of um, ha- use some awareness of my situation to correct that reach. And is that also that kind of like awareness or interrupting automatic action? Does that also kind of fall under cognitive control? Sure. Yeah. I, I think that's where it gets tricky specifically with the interface with uh, movement and motor control. Um, so you have a lot of um, actually automatic processes that can do this online error correction. So if you're reaching out to a coffee mug and, you know, someone bumps the table, um, that could be pretty in the moment automatic. Um, But if, you know, ahead of time you have a goal of, oh, I want to, maybe my, you know, index finger hurts, so I want to pick this up with my middle finger and my thumb or something like that, then that's a new goal. It's different than how you normally pick up a cup. Um, And that is kind of goal directed goal in this case. but you are definitely right that you can have kind of like larger goals, like, you know, don't hit a car or you can have more minute goals. Like I'm a little bit late. I'm going to try to go a little bit faster. Right. And that's going to probably change your actions that you take on your work. Let's say if you have a morning meeting that you don't want to miss. Um, hopefully that makes it a little bit more clear. Yeah. 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 No, that's good. What, what got you interested in this area originally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it was probably in, when I was an undergraduate student. Um, I knew I always wanted to take psychology. I was always interested in how people think and solve problems. And I think my first it was either a brain and behavior class or an intro to cognitive psychology class. And we talked about memory 
Um, and I somehow got really interested in attention and working memory specifically. And as I kept going through undergrad and also you know, doing some um, research on the side as a research assistant, I started getting more and more interested in <clears throat> just how it is that we kind of over overcome our automatic tendencies. Um, how does that process work exactly? And I should also mention, um, given some of my interests, I think I, I always loved sports and played a lot of sports growing up. Um, and I, there's always this interplay between kind of your automatic overtrained actions and what the goal is in the moment. And I mm-hmm. think that interplay has always kind of been in the back of my mind, um, even from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, I, after graduate school, I, I started looking at the melding of these two things before, but I think even way back then, it kind of motivated some of my interest in cognitive control more broadly. And at what point in that did you sort of start thinking about the brain, you know, specifically from more of like a cognitive neuroscience perspective, as opposed to maybe more of a um, behavioral psychology perspective? Sure. Yeah, I think around that same time, actually, I think I was just fascinated by the fact that we could um, identify the neural underpinning of any of these mm-hmm. kinds of processes. I don't, and it didn't occur to me at that time that that was something that one could do, I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people have experience or any contact with neuroscience or psychology for that matter um, in grade school or high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely didn't have much at all. Um, right. So I never really realized that you could connect behavior and neuroscience like that. And I thought that was very exciting um, and just seemed cool. You know, everybody likes cool brain pictures. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I got wrapped up in it as well. Um, and it made it seem... I think a lot of people report this who are cognitive neuroscientists um, and even lay people, but it made it seem more real if it was grounded in biology, I think. Um, so, I mean, I do think of myself as both a cognitive psychologist and a cognitive neuroscientist. And I could talk about how those, the, you know, merits of both and the mm-hmm. pitfalls of both. But um, uh, yeah, I think it just, it seemed cool and it seemed more real to me at just from the start even. And I still, I still love doing both, honestly. Mm-hmm. In the kind of in the context of thinking about brain systems, I wonder, can you give sort of a brief overview of what the main parts of the brain um, are that you think about, you know, either for cognitive control or for some of the related processes that you study? Sure. Yeah, I think for more or less my entire career, a lot of my research, uh, my cognitive neuroscience research has been focused on the prefrontal cortex. Um, so that's the Part of your brain that's basically right behind your forehead, um, often talked about um, as the part of the brain that is controlling attention or controlling, uh, is responsible for uh, uh, working memory and keeping your goals online. Um, so, in the context of my work, uh, part of the brain that we focus on often is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So, dorsal meaning top and lateral meaning side. So, the side top of the prefrontal cortex, I would say. Um, and this area has been implicated through a lot of neuroscience studies and cognitive neuroscience studies and animal studies in uh, controlling attention and in sending signals back to other parts of the brain. Kind of, I hesitate to say the top of the control because I think that's a tricky topic in and of mm-hmm. itself, but um, often thought about that way that is kind of directing uh, what's going on. Um, so in my work, we often uh, focus on prefrontal cortex. Um, we also uh, look at times at the interface between um, this lateral frontal cortex area and motor regions like motor cortex. Um, so primary motor cortex, for example, is involved in actually sending signals down to your muscles, um, down the spinal cord to your muscles um, about how to move, right? Um, and there's 
a whole host of other motor planning regions in between. Um, so kind of this whole pathway in between these frontal cortex areas and these motor areas and how they interface with one another, uh, amongst other regions as well, obviously. It always gets more complicated the further down you go. Yes, right. Sure. Uh, well, I kind of in that in that context, I'm going to ask you sort of like a um, a very like a detailed in the weeds question that people can feel free to ignore if they're not interested. But um, one of the challenges I think for all of us, depending on what our favorite region of the brain is, um, but is sort of you know clearly defining it. So so your your definition of um, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex was great, but if I wanted to situate that in the context uh, of the main gyri in the frontal lobe. So there's the inferior frontal gyrus, the middle frontal gyrus, the superior frontal gyrus. Is it is it mostly middle frontal gyrus? Is it inferior frontal sulcus? Does it matter? Like, how do you right. kind of operationally define DLPFC? Right. right, yeah, I think that in and of itself of how to fractionate DLPFC um, is a large question. You didn't know I was going to put you on the spot with this. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a large question. question. I know. <laughs> it's kind no, of it's, a, it's a good one. It's a really good one, though. Um, so for in the context of my work, at least, um, and especially when, you know, looking at interfaces with motor control, often mm-hmm. the region that keeps coming up over and over again is kind of this bit of the inferior frontal sulcus that is pretty far back, close to inferior frontal junction. Um, sometimes in fMRI studies, activation um, leads up into middle frontal gyrus as well. Okay. Um, and it seems, um, actually recently I have a study that, um, we're trying to stimulate this region and we got, um, the coordinates, so to speak, of where to stimulate people's brains from a meta-analysis that was looking at, um, attention to action specifically. And it seems in a whole host of studies, the same region is coming up over. So one of the things that we try to do in my lab is try to figure out what this region is actually doing, right? <laughs> so in the context of different tasks, how does this region, um, changes levels of activity, what are the kinds of things, uh, the kinds of information that um, we can read out from that brain region. And also when we use um, different brain stimulation techniques, what happens if we disrupt that uh, area of the brain for a short amount of time? What does that cause people to have deficits? So if I kind of take that offline for a little while, um, how do people react and what what does that actually hurt when people are doing these kinds of tasks? Um, yeah, I wonder, maybe you could um, talk a little bit about, you know, the brain stimulation approaches you use, and then and then maybe an example of, of how you've used that. So the brain stimulation technique that we use in my lab is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so the idea behind this technique is that you have a magnetic coil that has some wires running through it. And when you pass current through that coil, you can induce a magnetic field. And um, so given the relationship between uh, electricity and magnetism, you can uh, create magnetic fields by passing current uh, through some wires, basically. And that magnetic field can cross the skull and make neurons in the brain fire. Um, and so depending on the pattern of firing that you uh, induce in the brain, you can either make a certain part of the very focal part of the brain, maybe a centimeter or two. You can make that part of the brain either more excitable or less excitable. Um, so some people like to say that you can use TMS uh, or transcranial magnetic stimulation to kind of temporarily knock out a brain region um, and see what the effects of it are. Um, you can use this technique for a lot of other things as well. Um, it's often used in uh, motor control studies because if you use even a single pulse, it's called, if you pass this current really quickly through that coil over your motor cortex that controls your muscles, um, you can actually make those muscles fire. So um, the way we even calibrate it for each individual is we put this coil over motor cortex and we change our settings and intensities 
so that we can elicit finger movements just by the use of the coil. So um, it can feel fi- kind of funny for people to ha- have the experimenter make their fingers jump. Um, right. But it is a it is a pretty cool and powerful technique, and um, I've used it in the past in quite a few studies at this point. Um, usually to test predictions about the importance of a brain region in a particular function. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what disrupt is- the function of that region? How does that change behavior? And then you can sort of draw some conclusions about what it was doing when it was functioning okay. Right, exactly. So um, I can give an example from uh, yeah, one of the studies in my graduate work where um, so there's a lot of evidence that the prefrontal cortex might be sending signals back to visual cortex to either uh, ramp up excitability in the relevant areas of visual cortex or kind of tamp down and ignore um, some other kinds of and so what we did is that we used uh, this TMSic technique to disrupt an area of the prefrontal cortex uh, just before people did one of these attention tasks um, in the fMRI scanner, actually. And so we could see that disrupting activity there made people worse at this attention task. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also we could see that um, the activity in those visual regions that I was talking about that are important for the task also get altered by um, disrupting prefrontal activity. So um, we were able to show that, you know, you can actually affect uh, brain regions far away from the set of stimulation, depending on the task. Context. Mm-hmm. And this kind of, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of in the, this overall framework of cognitive control, right? So what you're saying is that normally dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex can um, affect other regions like, like primary sensory and motor regions, uh, for example, if by helping you attend, so if you're paying attention to a part of your environment, it may improve the processing for that part of the environment, helping you achieve your goal, whatever that is. And then now by disrupting it, you've sort of disrupted that mechanism of cognitive control. And so it has less, less control over those lower regions. I hate to call right. them lower regions, but, but I right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm, your listeners may be aware that you have different parts of your brain that we call, you know, you said primary regions, mm-hmm. right? So you have primary motor cortex, primary auditory cortex, primary visual cortex. Um, and so those regions are the first cortical sites, at least, that um, information from the outside world gets into your brain, right? And so um, the prefrontal cortex can, uh, what's called modulate activity in those regions or, you know, uh, make them more excitable, more reactive to what they see and hear and feel if you want to anthropomorphize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or less reactive, and um, just exactly what you said. If you disrupt your frontal cortex, it turns out it ruins those modulations. Um, so now they, those areas, in some sense, don't care as much about what you're supposed to be attending to anymore, and they just react to everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the role of motivation in in this whole kind of cognitive control, goal directed uh, uh, endeavor, because I know that's something that you've also been interested in. Sure. Yeah. So um, I got interested in that even before I got to graduate school. I think I was interested in um, reward and motivation. I had played a lot of poker <laughs> before grad school, uh-huh. actually. Um, Were you any good? Yeah, actually, I, I was. Uh, that's how I supported myself for a couple of years, actually, after undergrad. I didn't really know where I was going to go uh-huh. um, or what I was going to do. And I was making pretty good money. And so I decided to keep doing that until I could figure it out. Um, so I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about reward and decision making. Um, 
And, um, but I didn't get really interested in it uh, from a research standpoint and it didn't start doing any sense of it until a lot more recently, actually. But um, it turns out that there's a lot of evidence at this point um, coming from quite a wide variety of labs showing that when you're motivated, you can actually increase um, a lot of these cognitive control capabilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, intuitively, this might make sense, right? So I used that example earlier of, you know, you're, you're driving your car and you don't want to miss a meeting. Um, let's say you're driving in your car in, you know, England, again, we're on the left side of the road and it's not a normal place for you to drive. You may be better able to maintain that rule and overcome your automatic actions um, when you're in remote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, real world context is a lot of reasons to be motivated. Um, often in the lab, we use monetary rewards. So we have people play our little video games for $1, $50, things like that. And generally what you see um, is that people tend to increase control um, and increase their ability to attend to the right thing mm-hmm. um, when they're more motivated. Um, and specifically what's called proactive control. So kind of planning and forward planning tends to be a little bit better when motivated. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is kind of this interplay between these cognitive control processes and motor control processes because, you know, sometimes paying more attention and taking more control isn't exactly great for, let's say, a golf swing, for example. Maybe, maybe, you, should, maybe you don't know what you should be focusing on. You should just kind of just do it, as Nike used to say, right? Um, so I'm, one of the things I'm interested in is actually the kind of the, inner, the back and forth between that. You know, being motivated is good. Increasing cognitive control is good. But maybe it's not. And how does that work exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of the, the pluses and minuses, the, the good and the bad of cognitive control, I think, is um, one of the things that has motivated me for the past... I don't know, six, seven, eight years at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting because I feel like my default, um, you know, position, I don't know, just as a, as a cognitive neuroscientist who doesn't specialize in cognitive control, you know, I, my instinct is just like, well, more cognitive control is better, right? Like you should always do better if you're using these like, you know, highly evolved regions of your frontal lobe, you know, like that, that's always better. Right. Um, but as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking to, um, you know, what comes to mind really is more motor things, you know, kind of getting to your examples of, uh, now, so, so full disclosure, I was never a great athlete. Uh, <laughs> I, I played little league. My, 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 my favorite, um, my favorite embarrassing moment from little league was we, uh, you know, if you had, if you're up to bat and you had four balls instead of getting a walk to first, you got to hit the ball off the tee. Uh, and I, so I, I got four balls. So I got to hit the ball off the tee, which should be very easy because the ball is stationary. And I kept asking them to lower the tee so it was <laughs> as low as possible. I kept, I kept lining my bat up and then I swung with all my might and I hit the tee halfway to the pitcher, but I totally missed the ball. Anyway, so was, <laughs> um, but I feel like a, as a slightly older person, uh, I, I've done a little bit of, uh, bowling, although not for years, uh, never golf, but you know, there are these sort of, um, I guess I, I have this like intuitive sense of this memory of, of overthinking a lot of these movements. And when I'm right. able to, to kind of relax and not overthink it, then I do better. And I wonder if that sort of, you know, the disengagement of these cognitive control frontal systems and maybe, you know, does that let, as you were talking earlier about these sort of built in motor feedback or motor control mm-hmm. systems kind of do their thing, right? Like maybe we don't have to interrupt them if they already know how to do this stuff. 
Right. Uh, I think that's more or less exactly how I think about it. And there's, you know, there's a lot of experimental evidence for this too. Um, in that early on when you're learning a skill, often you need a lot of these processes to occur. So let's say, you know, you're learning how to juggle or something like that. You've never done it before. Someone might give you a few rules, you know, right hand and left hand or something like that. Or in the context of golf, try to keep your left arm straight. Um, and that will help your golf swing. Um, over time, you have other systems in the brain uh, that tend to learn over a longer time scale. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, it doesn't have to be um, motor control even. Uh, language often, often works like this. Grammar works like this. Often. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a long time for these systems to learn, but they pretty much learn autonomously and automatically from the errors they see to get in the environment. Mm-hmm. So over time, they learn the right thing to do. And um, in the context of motor control, you don't have access to your muscles consciously, right? Like, if you're riding a bike, you couldn't tell me how you fire your oblique muscles so you don't fall down. Mm-hmm. Um, you just kind of, you just kind of know that's muscle memory, right? Right. Um, and at that stage, I th- what I think is going on, at least, is that you have these systems that know how to do that task really well, and you actually don't have access to what you should be doing necessarily. So. Um, Yes, cognitive control is good, and you will do the thing that you're trying to do, but they not that may not be good for what your task is, right? So, um, let's say just riding the bike example. Maybe you think what helps you balance is that um, your legs are a certain way, right? So you can have this top-down goal: I'll keep my legs a little bit further apart, uh, but that may not be the right thing. Um, so you'll do that, but you might fall down more, right? Um, so I think cognitive control can be good if it's focused on the right thing. So. You know, if you're riding a bike, you should be paying attention to where you're going and you might be wanting to scan out there in the environment, whether cars are coming or pedestrians are there. But you probably don't want to be paying attention to and really trying to control how you're pedaling, what your abs are doing or something like that, right? So um, I do think of cognitive controls as kind of higher order thing where you can always take control and change what you're doing, but maybe that's not good. Maybe you don't know exactly consciously what you should be doing. You should just kind of let your body go. Um, and so, like I mentioned, there is a lot of experimental evidence that this is the case, um, specifically for experts. So um, there's a lot of work showing that um, expert musicians and expert athletes, if you ask them to pay attention to what their body is doing, their performance is actually worse than you if you ask them to pay attention to what's going on. Mm-hmm. So between, you know, throwing darts or hitting a baseball or, um, you know, playing a piano piece, um, if you pay attention to your sensory feedback from the environment, so what Say you're playing baseball, where does your bat go? Where does the ball go? And looking at the ball that's coming towards you, that usually leads to better performance and outcomes, especially for experts, than paying attention to what your arms are doing. Mm-hmm. So I think you still need cognitive control, but you need it to be deployed to the right place. And right. often we put it in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> right. Or not, maybe not, maybe not that often, I should say. Uh, but I'm interested yeah. in the cases yeah. where you put it in the wrong place and how that actually works. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one. Um, I know we, we've talked about a lot of a lot of your studies, actually, but let, let's talk about one in in, uh, in particular. Um, sure. This is a, a 2015 paper in Neuroimage: Out of Control Diminished Prefrontal Activity Coincides with Impaired Motor Performance Due to Choking Under Pressure, uh, and I'll include a link to this um, in the show notes. But I I love this idea of choking under pressure, and I I'm guessing that everyone like has had that experience, but like how would you how would you define that as a scientist what's what's choking under pressure yeah that's a good question um so the way that i usually define it is doing worse than 
you would expect in neutral condition, mm-hmm. specifically because of some external stressor or overmotion. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reasons people might do worse. You might have an injury or something like that. But I, in the context of our lab studies, we can get a sense of someone's baseline performance and then put them in different pressure situations and see how the performance is. And if the performance is worse in pressure situations and the performance is worse specifically because of the pressure situation, I would say that you're choking. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that often, um, you know, colloquially we talk about it as, you know, missing an easy shot or an easy putt or something like that in sports. Uh, but basically failing under pressure, doing worse than you'd expect because you're under pressure now is what I would define as choking. Under pressure. Right. And I guess in the, in anyway, in the lab, you know, what position, what um, situation you're putting people in. And so you can sort of have a good idea about whether they're under a higher pressure or lower pressure situation. So. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, like I was saying, with everything, it can get pretty complicated. But um, in the context of my work, typically we try to use reward. Um, so we use very large rewards and specifically very rare large rewards. Large rewards. Mm-hmm. So certain certain trials, you may say, hey, hey this is the jackpot trial, for example. Um, and if those are rare enough and those are large enough, often people do much worse in those trials than they would on a, a trial that's worth a middling amount of so um, in my lab, we've usually, or we've exclusively, I should say, used um, reward. So and the advantage of that is we get to see, you know, the good things about motivation. When reward gets a little bigger, people do a little better. Mm-hmm. And also when it's really big, yeah, people do a little bit worse often. Um, so we kind of look at both sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. Um, as you might imagine, there's a lot of individual differences in how people react to rewards. So um, other labs have um, kind of combined reward and money pressure with social pressure and that really causes people to choke under pressure so mm-hmm. you can do things like um hey now you're playing for cash bonuses you're playing with a partner um in order to win the money you guys both have to do great they already went and they did awesome oh by the way we're also going to be videotaping you oh by the way i'm training a new research assistant they're just gonna be standing next to you watching your performance you know so if you uh-huh. the more the kinds of sources of pressure you love the worse people do right um for me it's a as a scientist, you know, you want to draw some lines between specific manipulations and people's behaviors. So I've kind of taken the tack of trying to minimize how many we use, but it does make choking less likely to occur the fewer that you have. Sure. People are, there's a lot of influences in how people react to situations, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you can use those in research as well. And a lot of people do it. Like it you know, non oh, That sounds kind of fun. I, I feel bad. I know. I know. <laughs> Well, you know what? Like we actually order, so we have some little webcams that we have. And we have some lab coats and lab because we were planning on doing some of these kinds of studies to kind uh-huh. of really load up the social pressure. Um, we haven't actually gotten a chance to get to it yet, um, mm-hmm. both because of COVID and um, one of the uh, my lab manager moved on to another position at some point. So we've, we've kind of paused on that. But I'm actually really interested in, you know, is there some evidence that social pressure might be a little different than, you know, um, monetary pressure and reward pressure? Um, and, in terms of kinds of the impairments that they might produce. I mean, it's really interesting. This is like really getting off topic and then we'll get back on topic, but I, anecdotally, uh, so for mm-hmm. the work that I do, which is more, you know, language and, and speech research, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, anecdotally on a lot of tasks, people seem to perform better if the researchers in the room, right. Mm-hmm. So we have them listening to a bunch of sentences and pressing yeah. the key and, you know, some, some people will do it and sort of say, okay, just do your thing and pop out, pop your head out the door when you're done and let me know. And other people will um, be very conscientious and sit in there and, and try not to be obtrusive and try not to provide, you know, too much pressure, but kind of be there 
And, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, people perform better typically when there's a person there. So I do think yeah. social you know, facilitation. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's like a, a good, uh, you know, for us, that's a good, good motivational constraint, but um, yeah, I can. Yeah. There's, there's actually, yeah. there's a lot of cool work. Um, l- trying to look at specific that interplay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it depends on what the, um, so in the context of these studies, it often depends on what the participant thinks that person's in the room for. Right. right. So if, if you tell them, if you tell the participant, hey, this person's going to be in the room, they're going to be evaluating your performance or, you know, judging you or something like that. Um, often people do worse. Right. But, oh, you know, people like having... Code in a clipboard and they're kind of... Yeah, exactly. Stuff as exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can, you have this image of like, you know, a person with glasses on the end of their nose looking down at you and, right. you know, writing notes furiously as you do okay. a task, um, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But I do think it's the case, you know, especially in a lot of these lab studies, they might be boring and there is some, um, you know, demand characteristics, basically you want to perform well for the experimenter. So being around can often help as well. So it's, right. um, there are, two, again, like, like a lot of things we've been talking, there's kind of two sides to the same coin, right? Um, mm-hmm. it depends exactly on the nature of it, exactly how it's presented, I think. Um, yeah. And it's, it's tricky, but it's fun, right? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, totally. Um, so for this, uh, choking under pressure study, can you like walk us through, you know, the specific task and then, and sort of sure. you know, how people performed and what you found? Sure. Sure. So, um, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the background and motivation of the study. Um, so like I'd mentioned, there'd been a decent amount of, um, behavioral studies looking at choking under pressure. And this has kind of led to two different theories of why choking, people choke under pressure. Um, so this has led to two different theories of why people choke under pressure. Um, so the first, and both of these theories make appeals to this cognitive control process that we've been talking about. Um, so one theory suggests that what's going on when you're choking under pressure is, you know, it's the big moment. And instead of thinking about the task that you're doing, you are now distracted away and thinking about failing or what people might think. Um, so these are kind of distraction theories of choking under pressure. So um, instead of using your cognitive control in the service of the task, it, it's now distracted away and you're thinking about other things you're not focusing enough. On the other hand, we have um, this other class of theories that sometimes called monitoring theories or explicit monitoring theories that suggest, well, you know what, maybe what's going on is that when you're in this high pressure environment, um, specifically for motor skills, you really try to take control of what you're doing, but that's not actually good if it's an automatic action. So you know, I can go back to that example of golf if you're tiger woods maybe you don't exactly want to be focusing on what your elbow is doing in that moment because you've done a golf right um and there again like i mentioned before there's a lot of evidence that specifically when experts do that kind of uh or when experts have that kind of attention to their body that could be um so the motivation behind this study was that i wanted to see if that in a particular situation we can use neuroimaging to kind of tease apart which one of these theories is more explanatory um, in the context of sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of alluded to this before a little bit, but, um, the task, I kind of designed this new task from scratch because I, um, I want people to not have any experience with the motor task. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if any of your listeners have ever played that old game snake on a cell phone where you're trying to control a snake and have it to mm-hmm. eat, eat an apple and it gets longer and longer. Um, so I kind of started with that task and I kind of modified it a bit. So instead of a little snake eating a little tiny apple, it was a little snake that you have to just navigate over to this large apple on the other side of the screen. Um, and instead of growing, you just had different trials where you just have to get that snake over 
there to be at Apple um, under a certain time limit. And um, people had two little mouse scroll wheels that they were using to control the snake. One wheel would control the speed of the snake and the other would do some steer. Um, so it's this really tricky, what's called bi-manual, two-handed motor task where you have to learn to coordinate your hands together to get there under the time limit. But if you went too fast, it said you were going too fast, you know, so it's... Mm-hmm. Um, we had people come in on uh, one day and kind of play the, this little game for about an hour or so in the um, fMRI scanner. And then a couple of days later, they came back and they played for cash bonuses. So in the context of this study, I believe we gave them on different trials, we were playing for either $5, $10, or $40. Um, and so we wanted to see how performance and how brain activity would change as a function of that. So we wanted to see what brain areas kind of change their activity and how does performance differ when you go from $5 to $10? And then what happens when you get to these big reward trials, these $40 trials? Um, do people do worse? And if they do, are there any hints of what's going on in the brain that might be contributing to this worse performance? Um, uh, and, you know, I, I do want to make a point that um, just giving people money, you might not get choked under pressure, but we kind of did a lot of experimenting early on in piloting to try to figure out the exact kinds of reward schemes and how to make those large jackpot trials rare enough. And, um, uh, you know, if they're back to back, for example, um, if you put a bunch of $40 trials in the row, people get used to it, right? So you have mm-hmm. to kind of make them rare and surprising. Like, oh man, this is the big one. And then right. and big enough that people sort of, uh, you know, remark on it internally. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and um, I, just a note for people, I, I think, uh, so just a note, you didn't actually pay people like hundreds of dollars for the study. You selected right, yeah. some, some set and, and. Right. Yeah. So the, the way we typically use, exper- uh, so the way we typically use rewards in the lab is, um, we say a trial is worth $5. This trial is worth $10. This trial is worth $4 for people. And at the end of the experiment, we pick one trial at random. And if they got that trial right, they win that associated dollar. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we try to guard against is people earning money throughout the task. Um, so let's say you had a bunch of $10 trials and got it right. And by the end of the experiment, let's say you've already won $300. Well, then $40 might not mean as much anymore, right? right. Um, so in order to kind of keep each trial independent, you only get one of those, but you never know which one. So you mm-hmm. kind of have to be trying the whole time. Right, because this trial could be the one that gets picked. Exactly. You're either going to get zero or $40. Exactly. Which like a big difference exactly 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 so um um yeah and then did you say this already were they rewarded on every trial or were there some trials where there was no reward so in this experiment there was always some level of reward uh related to each trial so we had basically low medium and high reward trials so what we found is maybe what you'd expect given the conversation is that um, on $5 trials, people did all right. They did a little bit better on $10 trials, but at these big $40 trials, um, they did a little bit worse uh, than they did on $10 trials. Mm-hmm. And specifically, in the first half experiment where all these money trials were new, they tended to do a lot worse in those $40 trials than those medium value trials. And so what we did with the neuroimaging is we were really interested in, okay, well, ultimately, when people are moving and doing this game, Ultimate motor cortex is sending the signals down to your muscles. So we want to take a look at what other brain areas are communicating with motor cortex, potentially. And how does that differ when people are choking under pressure? Mm-hmm. So when we're doing neuroimaging, we can um, use an analysis called a functional connectivity analysis to try to make this inference. And basically, the, the rationale behind a functional connectivity analysis is that you can look over time 
at the overall activity of certain brain areas. So in our case, we have motor cortex and dorsolateral cortex. And we can look over time on a trial-by-trial basis, what's the activity level in each of these regions separately. And then what we can do is say, okay, over time, what areas seem to be going up and down together? So what areas on a trial-by-trial basis seem to be raising and lowering their activity levels uh, at the same rate? Um, And the inference we make in neuroimaging often is that if we find two areas that are kind of singing along together through time like this, that they are communicating in a network and they're speaking to each other or talking to each other and they're functionally connected. Um, So what we did in this study was we looked at $10 trials specifically and so, okay, what areas are kind of singing along with motor cortex on these $10 trials? And then separately, we could look at $40 trials and say, okay, are there any other areas that seem to be singing along with motor cortex only on these $40 trials? Mm-hmm. And so what we found when we uh, looked at the difference between these connectivity maps, we're going to call them, of who's talking to motor cortex at what time, we did find this region of the prefrontal cortex that I was talking about earlier, this dorsal of prefrontal cortex region that seemed to be communicating with the motor cortex more on these $40 trials when people were chosen. Um, and so we followed up with that because we thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, so it does look like potentially some of these cognitive control processes might be involved given what we know about dorsal of prefrontal cortex. Um, and what we saw specifically was that those people who were choking under pressure were those who couldn't increase this communication between prefrontal cortex and motor. So the people who were doing just fine really showed this increase in communication between motor cortex and prefrontal cortex. And the people who ended up choking under pressure were the ones who were doing that pretty poorly. So we kind of took this as evidence for distraction. So these $40 trials, you know, you know, they're really important and potentially this makes you distracted away from the task a little bit. And what you need to do to stay on task, potentially, is increase your control over your motor behavior, increase communication between dorsal prefrontal cortex and motor cortex. And if you're able to do that well, you do just fine. If you can't, if you can't resist this distraction, potentially you're the ones who choke it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the context of this study, at least, we really thought the support of this distraction account that, okay, when you're in these high-pressure moments, you really need to focus even more on the task that you're doing because you're so susceptible to distraction. But I, I do want to make a note that this is people who are pretty new to the task, right? These are novices. Um, so you might imagine this might change. This story might change a little bit if we look at experts. Well, if I had these people play this game for months and months and months and months, you know, a couple hours, um, mm-hmm. the story might be a little bit different. But um, I do think it, it it was a cool study to to be able to to be able to see some evidence for why why people were choking under pressure, even if it was just novices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of us do. I mean. Anyway, we're all learning new things all the time, whether it's motor skills or or other stuff. And so I think it, it is it's super applicable. I mean, we're not all professional athletes, or, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, cool. So, do, do you think? Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm I'm trying to put together then. So we've you've got motivation, and mm-hmm. of course you can manipulate that with with monetary reward, cognitive control, the motor system for whatever task you're doing. You know, is there maybe 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 another way to ask this is sort of like, is there anything else you're going to throw into the mix? Because this is it gets pretty complex, right? I mean, this yeah. behavior is like multifaceted. Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of my curse is that uh, I there are people who devote their whole life to studying one small part of the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. and the people who very tightly and very um, carefully 
study a very specific motor skill for a long time. And I think that work is awesome and very rigorous and amazing. But it turns out my interests are how these things all relate together. Um, so my experiments do tend to be a little bit um, complicated because I want to see how these pieces fit together a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, um, so do I add anything else? Um, we're starting to look at the cerebellum, which is uh, <laughs> I think that, uh-huh. Uh-huh. a whole another can of worms, I should say, I, I think. Um, uh, but no, no other manipulation in yeah. terms of experiments. Well, I, but I think that, you know, the importance about looking at these things together. So if you've shown that there's interactions between them, then kind of like necessarily, if you only look at one region or one part of the, the puzzle, you're going to miss that, that effect, right? So if you only right. look at motor cortex and you never look at how it's interacting with um, cognitive control regions, then you're going to, you are going to miss part of it, even if you really understand that one you know, that one part of the story really well. So, so this seems like really important work. I wonder then, you know, maybe just in, in, in closing a little bit, but do you see any, you know, path for some of the things you've been working on to, to affect, you know, rehabilitation? Actually, it's something I've been thinking about a lot more as I've become an assistant professor. Um, I actually have a couple collaborations open right now with folks who do research into Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, specifically because Parkinson's disease is thought of as a movement disorder, but it turns out they often, uh, Parkinson's patients also have a lot of motivational issues as well, and they don't really react to rewards that they expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually right now we are, again, paused by COVID, but um, hopefully we're going to get up again soon. I'm trying to take a look at how this coupling between motivation and action is impaired in Parkinson's disease specifically. So one idea is that Parkinson's patients have trouble translating their motivation into action. So it's not necessarily that they have trouble walking. Um, it's the case that they have trouble getting motivated to walk mm-hmm. and translating their goals and this goal directed control we've been talking about so much, translating those goals into the action. And those, that connection may be somewhat impaired in Parkinson's disease. So um, we're actually looking at that right now. And hopefully um, we have some, compelling results into giving us clues about what the deficits are and kind of what kinds of strategies and rehabilitation strategies might be the most effective. So you might imagine if the problem is action, attentional, goal-directed control one, you might have different kinds of strategies and trainings that you give someone relative to if it was just a motor problem, just get to relearn how to use your example. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm really excited about that avenue research that we have going on now as well. And hopefully that'll continue. Yeah, that's great. Well, Taraz, thanks so much for joining me today. And it was uh, just really great to hear about your work. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to chat. All right. Bye, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tell a friend who might enjoy it and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. You can also support The Brain Made Plain on Patreon and get access to longer interviews and other goodies. Go to patreon.com slash brainmadeplain. As always, links for every episode can be found on the website, thebrainmadeplain.net. Thanks for listening.